0: I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Lost logic.
1: Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. All right, we are live uh, for another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today um, I have a guest with me, uh, Chris Date, um, who will be helping me uh, answer some objections to Calvinism. We're going to address the issue of Calvinism and popular objections to it. Um, Chris Date is a great guy. He uh, knows his stuff, and I'm looking forward to um, interacting with him a little bit and learning uh, how— how one might defend uh, the Reformed faith from common uh, objections. So before we begin that, I just want to make a a few announcements. Um, Nothing set in stone, but I have a couple of upcoming guests. Um, I have um, Dr. James Anderson from Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Hopefully we can solidify the date um, in March uh, to talk a little bit about transcendental arguments. And um, I will definitely keep people uh, posted on that as well. And I also have just um, secured uh, Sean Cole. If anyone's familiar with Sean Cole, he is a reformed pastor. He's debated the likes of uh, Leighton Flowers. And um, I believe there was an interaction with him and and Braxton Hunter over at Trinity uh, Bible College. And um, So we have a couple of uh, interesting uh, guests coming up. Uh, Sam Shamoon as well, who's also known as the Assyrian Encyclopedia, where we'll be having him on at a later date to discuss um, defenses of the Trinity and um, responses to Islam. So once those dates are solidified, I'll definitely be sure to post that on my Facebook page, Revealed Apologetics. But until then, if if you just want to listen to the episodes that we've done so far, uh, check out my podcast, Revealed Apologetics, on iTunes. And, of course, you can subscribe to the YouTube page as well. All right. Well, all that out of the way, um, we have Chris Date here. Now, if those of you who know Chris Date from other areas of theology, he is a very controversial person, uh, especially in regards to his views on uh, hell. So why don't you um, share a little bit about what you're doing in that area? We don't have to go into great detail, but why don't you share with folks – a little bit about why you're so controversial in these other areas, yet very interesting topics uh, to discuss. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, so I'm part of a ministry called Rethinking Hell. Uh, I'm also sort of the leading, the spearhead of a a movement of evangelicals who've become convinced that the Bible teaches conditional immortality or annihilationism rather than the traditional view of hell. Um, And I suppose what's controversial is well, other than the fact that the view is such a minority of the of, uh, um, of, of Christian thought on the topic for at least the past 1500 years, but also because uh, I'm not I don't fit what a lot of critics of annihilationism or conditionalism think. Uh, is true of people who hold to our view. So I'm not, uh, I'm not liberal. I'm not progressive. I'm not emergent. I'm none of those things. I'm, I'm very conservative. I'm, I'm a five point Calvinist. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And I think that there's nothing more reformed, nothing more conservative, nothing more evangelical that a Christian can do besides accept what the Bible says about hell, which isn't the traditional view. So, um, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what I do. And so as part of Rethinking Hell, we you know we publish uh, we publish a couple of books. I publish journal articles. We do an annual conference. In fact, we've got another one coming up, our seventh in November of this year, uh, up in my neck of the woods, up in the, here in the Seattle area. And if people want to find out more about that, they can go to rethinkinghellconference.com. And I do a weekly YouTube live stream, Mondays at 6 PM Pacific, which people can find at youtube.com uh, slash rethinkinghell. Um, so yeah, uh, those kinds of things that's that's uh, that's where my work is in that area
1: all right and um, uh, again th- I know there are a lot of uh, especially within the reformed community uh, at least within the popular uh, echelons of the reformed community uh, there are people are very quick to condemn uh, others for being associated with others who don't hold to the traditional views uh, I am a reformed Christian I I don't hold to your view on hell but then You'll again, And then again, it's not an area that I have um, that I have looked into very much. And so if we're going to be true reformers and we're going to hold to the principle of Semper Reformanda, we need to be willing to um, reevaluate some of our traditional beliefs and to um, see them in light of Scripture and be able to defend those positions biblically. If we find that there are certain views that we've held to for a long time and we're unable to defend biblically, then we should we should consider that as well. So, um, so just because uh, we don't agree in those areas doesn't mean that there is not any value in anything else you have to say, uh, because you are a bright guy, and uh, I do appreciate uh, the spirit with which you engage in dialogues and um, debates and things like that. And I think there's something there for for everyone to learn. Thank you. Well, thank you for for coming on. Now, um, how long have you been a Calvinist? What? Well, why don't you? First of all, why don't you define for us your definition of a Calvinist, and then explain uh, how long you've been a Calvinist and maybe tell us a little bit about your backstory.
0: Yeah, so when I uh, hear and use the word Calvinist, I think of somebody who affirms at least uh, four out of the five so-called points of Calvinism. Um, you know, so uh, those who self-identify as four-point Calvinists would affirm total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, the tulip the of tulip. Uh, and then the uh, those of us who are consistent Calvinists would say that we, we would affirm the L as well, the limited atonement, uh, which is a bit of an <clears throat> uh, unfortunate way of phrasing it. We don't think that Christ's uh, atoning work is limited in any sense of the word. We, uh, we think it's particular. We think it's, its scope is restricted to the elect. But anyway, so that's what I um, mean when I say I'm a Calvinist, that I affirm all, all five points. Uh, I do think though that um, Calvinists generally, or at least many of us, I suppose I should say, we affirm many or all of those five points because of a first point that we affirm even before we affirm TULIP. Uh, which is the sovereignty of God, by which we mean something like meticulous providence of God. So I don't believe that God simply um, knows all things that are going to take place in time. I think that he foreordains every single detail that takes place in time. Um, And I think it's that foreordination of God, that meticulous foreordination of God that makes it even make sense for us to pray that, you know, if, if we're, if we're, Trapped in a ravine after a car crash out in the middle of nowhere, it makes little sense to pray for God to rescue us if we don't believe that He can orchestrate uh, events, myriad minutia of events, in order to uh, get, you know, somebody driving an ambulance or, or to, to show up, or somebody driving a car to come by and, and make a phone call to the, you know, to, to emergency services. The point being, meticulous providence means we believe that God actually uh, can answer our prayers in ways that I don't think people who deny it cannot. Um, but anyway, so so when I talk about Calvinism, I'm talking about people who affirm those four or five points and and preferably even the, the meticulous providence of God. Now, how did I get to that point? Um, I began my Christian walk when I was 20 or 21 years old and having been an atheist and being a part of sort of the, you know, the individualistic freedom-loving West. I began my Christian walk as a standard non-Calvinist. And early on in my faith, I became friends with somebody who would become my discipler and my mentor, my best friend. He remains my best friend to this day. And he challenged me on Calvinism. And and at first I fought it tooth and nail. Um, It it, uh, it, it wasn't that it sounded unjust to me or anything. Like I, I just can't relate to some of the arguments that we're probably going to be discussing today. But one thing that really did irk me and and infuri- infuriate me was this was the notion that God might have chosen to save me, but not have chosen to save my wife. You know, my wife and I by this point had been married a few years. I was a Christian; she was not yet, because we'd been married as atheists. And I was like, you know, how, how dare God choose me and not my wife? You know, I was just I was really upset about it. But at some point. Well, so so he challenged me from the biblical data and I had no good response, Um, but I still fought it until the thought occurred to me that there's nobody I would rather my wife's eternal destiny, no one whose hands I would rather my wife's eternal destiny be in than God's. I would much rather God be the one who ultimately determines whether my wife will be saved rather than her, because if it were up to us, I think none of us would choose to be saved. And I include my wife in that list, in, in, in that list. Um, so when, when I was able then to see not only how the biblical data supported this view, but also how much more um, confidence it meant I could have in whether or not my wife would be saved and, and whether that would be appropriate, et cetera. Um, you know, when I, uh, uh, when I realized that, I stopped fighting tooth and nail and I embraced it. uh, And I've been a Calvinist ever since. In fact, I've even published a two views debate book on two parts of Calvinism, you know, the meticulous providence and and, and unconditional election. Um, And it's funny incidentally that you mentioned uh, Sam Shmoon, because he, uh, I I, I cite him in my uh, debate book Oh, actually, sorry. That's a different debate book. That's a debate book I've got coming out with Dale Tuggy, a Unitarian. Um, but anyway, I'm rambling now. Hopefully, that answers your question in a roundabout sort of way. Oh
1: well, no, no, that's that's good. And I think it's very important for people to understand uh, people's uh, backstories uh, because people don't just come to beliefs just willy-nilly. I mean, right. you do have you do have people who will affirm a theological position because it is popular. Um, or they are associated with a particular denomination that they want to make sure they're in line with, maybe because of leadership positions and things like that. Um, And so I think it's very helpful to see um, what is the background story as to what brings people to the things they believe. And of course, no doubt you have... um, a vast array of biblical support as to why you hold to the positions uh, that you do. Um, I, we have uh, Tyler Vela asking you a question, if you don't mind. He says, Eli, how can Chris affirm the man-made theology of a murderer? Hashtag Servetus. Uh, that's just a fun uh, poke at, at Chris. I hope you don't mind that. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and you don't have to answer that either. <laughs> no worries there. Uh, so... so I was just going to say all of us believe something that really terrible people from history or or people who've made terrible decisions in history have done. So I'm really no different than anybody else in that regard. Boom, take that Tyler. Okay, <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> Um,
1: all right. Well, um, you laid out basically what Calvinism is just by way of um, vocabulary and definitions. Uh, there are a lot of people who make a big deal out of the equivocation between Calvinism and reformed theology. And there are some, there's a, a broad stroke of, of what is included within reformed tradition. And so when people um, equate Calvinism with reformed theology, you have these other groups within the umbrella of reformed saying hey wait a minute you know that's that's not fair you know you could be reformed and not a calvinist um would you equate reformed theology with calvinism or do you make certain distinctions that it includes a broader uh, tradition there
0: i think historically i've thought that all people who identify as reformed are in fact calvinists but i think i'm learning that that's not the case and i just don't know enough about the other streams within Reformed theology to be able to speak in an informed way to those to those distinctions. Um, but yeah, I, I think we've, I think I've become convinced that you can't just simply equate the two. Reformed Calvinists are a subset, evidently, of people who hold the Reformed theology. And I suppose it's even possible that there might be Calvinists who don't affirm Reformed theology, although I don't know who that would be.
1: <laughs> okay, very good. All right, well, so then let's just jump into the bulk of, of what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I've entitled this this uh, interview, this kind of video, answering objections to Calvinists uh, Calvinism. Sorry, and uh, so really, this is geared towards the average uh, Calvinist. I'm gonna be careful; I don't want to say Reformed guy. You know, uh, this is geared towards them, and I, I know there are a lot of texts upon uh, Calvinism where um, many Calvinists are just at a loss. They're not sure how to respond to um, many of these uh, objections. And so I wanna go through uh, some popular objections um, more specifically, but in your opinion, um, at least in the popular level, what do you think is the most common objection you hear to Calvinism? And then how might you kind of provide a a response there?
0: Yeah, I think that the most common objections that I hear to Calvinism um is the notion that in our view, human beings are somehow like puppets or robots or something like that, that uh, that, that we somehow, we don't have any re- any meaningful freedom or, or, or moral responsibility uh, if God foreordains all that takes place in time, or even if he just predestines who's going to believe. Um, and how you would respond to that, I mean, uh, so there are a couple of things here that I th- think are worth noting. First of all, when when non-Calvinists compare Uh, Human human beings to puppets or to robots. In our view, they're using they're they're first of all using analogies that that flatten out uh, the the reality of things. And here's what I mean by that. In our view, um, God isn't on the same plane as us. He's not in the same stream of time. He's not just one in a long uh, chain of causes and effects. Um, He transcends us. You know, the, the relationship I've I've often compared uh god and creation too is the relationship between an author and his and his novel you know the entire story inside an author's novel is right there in the hands of the author um, it's not like the author is in the timeline of the story and the author has written the story and the author is not in some sort of cause and effect type chain causing the the characters in the story to do what the, what they do he's he's for ordaining, if you will, that the characters in the story do exactly what they do. but if you were to ask that character why did you do this or that they're going to tell you well because i I wanted to you know that that was what I wanted to do or that was the decision I thought was the best given all the all the factors involved that they wouldn't they wouldn't say I just I felt this inexplicable pull you know that, that caused me to do this or that you know that's not the that's not the relationship between God and creation so um so I think the problem with the analogies is that it takes this, this uh, reality in which God is transcendent and human beings are imminent. And these objections flatten that relationship and make God just an, another actor in time. Um, once you get rid of this really facile objection or, or the view that in our view, people are just like puppets and robots whose movements are being uh, caused by this chain of cause and effect in which God is a player. Once you move past that, um, I, I think much of the objection vanishes, um, especially if you consider that human beings, unlike robots and puppets, also have consciousness and and will. And you know, you may not. We wouldn't say it's a libertarian will, um, but we would say that they're fundamentally different from puppets and robots in in important ways. Uh, so yeah, that that would be the the most common objection I've heard is how can we, how can you say we're anything more than puppets or robots? And and the way that I just answered it, that is how I would say it hmm. Now, now, when people hear Calvinism,
1: they usually have this knee jerk reaction and this question is then produced. Oh, aren't you those guys who deny that we have free will? All right. So so let's clarify this. Uh, when someone asks you as a Calvinist, uh, do you believe in free will? How do you answer that?
0: I say yes, but I believe in a particular kind of free will or, or uh, formulation of free will. You know that what most people I think when they use the phrase free will, they mean even if they don't haven't heard of this terminology, they mean libertarian free will. Meaning they, uh, at any point in history, when they chose X or Y, they metaphysically could have chosen uh, the alternative. Um, in other words, there was uh nothing in time right then and there and nothing ultimate n- not not god not anything that determined it perfectly and and on you know uh uh unreservedly anyway nothing that determines that you they would choose this or that thing they genuinely could have chosen this or that thing and um it's just a matter of which they choose but uh uh, the form of free will that I believe in, and that I suspect you believe in as well, is what we call compatible uh, compatibilistic free will, mm-hmm. which is the notion that humans have a kind of freedom. It's a kind of freedom with which we are imbued by God, um, but it's a freedom that is at the same time compatible with uh, divine sovereignty, with with uh, divine providence, um, uh, and this and and but but even that's really not where we get the word compatibilism from the word comes from the compatibility we think there is between that divine sovereignty that i just mentioned that meticulous foreordination of god and human responsibility mm-hmm. so then the question becomes well how could how could those two things be compatible how could somebody be truly morally responsible if god has foreordained that a person will do x or y and there's simply no metaphysical um uh, chance that the person could have done the other. Um, and and that's where I think the the emphasis is on this is this is what we as creatures want to do. you know that the the common objection to this kind of free will is that uh, you know, people are being coerced or forced or something like that to do this or that thing. but any I, I suspect that if on the final day if you and if we're right, if you ask anybody, why they rejected Christ, why they killed this person, why they cheated on their spouse or whatever, they're going to tell you, well, that's what I wanted to do, or that was what I felt was the right thing to do, given these, you know, this or that circumstance. Um, so I think that all it takes for a human to be free in the sense that enables them to be hold, held morally responsible is they need to want to do what they do, or, or, or they need to come to the conclusion that it's the, the best of all possible things that they could do. And that doesn't, that is perfectly compatible with the idea that God foreordained it in the same way that going back to my analogy of the author in a story, if the author writes that some protagonist in, or some antagonist in his novel is going to murder somebody, yes, the murderer does it um, in, in a sense because the author has written it, but the author isn't coercing the character or causing the character to do this or that as some for, sort for, sort of, Chain event of cause and event, like I said. Um, so, so I yes, I think we have free will, but I think it's creaturely free will. It's it's the only the only one who, who has the kind of free will that I think most people have in mind when they talk about the word is God. Um, so yeah. So now
1: okay. So people do what they desire to do. So I guess the pushback would be, well, why does one person desire to do what they do and another person desire to do what they want to do? Doesn't God on Calvinism uh, create the desire, so to speak, the desire, the reason why they desire what they want to desire is because of God ultimately,
0: mm-hmm. so he's would, the ultimate cause of it. Sure.
1: Right. So how would you respond to someone who suggests that with, you know, and in that suggestion, there's the indication that God is somehow at fault as to why you desire to do what you do and act upon those desires. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I just don't see the objection. I, 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 it, 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 what I mean is I don't see any teeth in it. You know, um, we could say, well, gosh, God's just God's causing that um, that desire. And uh, so he's at fault or or or, or the, the person still can't be excused or, or can be excused because God is the one who's ultimately causing those desires. But I don't think that's true. You know, even when somebody you know, when somebody uh, gets drunk, let's say, and uh, the, and while inebriated, they do something terrible like run somebody over that person isn't only morally responsible for the choice to have gotten drunk. They're also responsible for the choice they made when their decision making had been hindered by having gotten themselves drunk. So I don't, I don't, and that's obviously an imperfect analogy, but my point is, is that we're not, um, it, I don't think that our ultimate, the ultimate source of our desires has to be our own personal free, you know, libertarian free will in order for us to be held morally responsible. I think that, you know, um, in, in, in going back to my analogy, if, if an antagonist, if a serial killer in a book is, um, tried, you know, in, in a trial, nobody's going to say, oh, well that, that person should get off the hook because the author just made that made him do it. Right. Um, th- that's why I keep referring to this, this relationship, this transcendent relationship between God and creation, because I think that it, um, nullifies a lot of these objections. And as far as does it, does it uh, th- does it put the blame on God in, in, in some sort of sense that would make us question God's goodness or, or, or God's culpability? And, and here I would say that, um, number one, we have biblical uh, evidence that this is, in fact, uh, the way things work. You know, um, in, in the book of Genesis, for example, when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, he tells them "You, what you did for evil or... or the, the evil you meant for me, God did it for good. Uh, God meant it for good. you know. And, and, and the, the same exact verb meant or intended or for ordained, in fact, everywhere the throughout the Old Testament that this word translated evil or calamity or whatever is used in conjunction with this verb meaning to intend or to mean or whatever, the verb means something like design, devise, that kind of thing. And here we have a one example, among many, I would argue, where God, uh, where, where it is both the human beings who intend evil and God who intends that evil, both the human beings who devise that evil and God who does it. So number one, we have to wrestle um, and reckon with the fact that God does, in fact, foreordain evil desires in this way. But secondly, I would say that um, often what determines whether... Um, a, 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 an act is righteous or not is the motives behind the right the, the act. Uh, and I think the one that I just offered from the book of Genesis is a, is a good example. Both the both the humans and God are designing, devising, intending whatever this this evil calamity to befall um, Joseph. But what is the difference? Well, the text says uh, that the difference is that God's intentions behind it were good. Mm. Um, and I think that if we were to say that if a human being were to cause somebody's desires to be this or that. Um, there's gonna be sinful, selfish intentions wrapped up in that. But if it's God who's doing it, I think that the motives may indeed be uh, pure and and don't in any way make God culpable. So going back to my analogy of the, the author and a story, I'm, I'm a big believer that um, a big reason why God foreordains evil is so that we can emulate, Um, aspects of God's character that we simply could not emulate if it hadn't been for the reality of evil and sin. Mm -hmm. If it hadn't been for the reality of evil and sin, nobody could show mercy. Nobody could show grace or forgiveness. Um, You know, uh, if there weren't suffering and evil in the world, then there would be no opportunity to be like God in these ways, to act Mm -hmm. like God in these ways. And, And so I think that God has told a profound story, uh, in which there is evil and sin and fall and redemption and forgiveness and grace. Uh, he's tell, he's told this story, and just like any compelling story, there's there's fall and there's redemption. And God has written a story in that way so that we as creatures can, exp- can act out certain characteristics of God that we wouldn't have been able to had we not had uh, sin and evil in the world. So you would say that
1: God sinlessly preordains all the evil that occurs. That's right. Along with preordaining sinlessly everything that occurs.
0: That's right, exactly.
1: And yeah. so and so that the and and the fact that God has preordained all things is what gives the things that are actually preordained meaning and purpose such that there is no gratuitous event, good or bad. they just not, you know, there's always a purpose and a reasoning behind why these things occur. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Okay, yeah,
0: in fact, uh, I, I write about just that in my debate book. I open this I open my opening statement in that debate book with the story of my wife's and my miscarriage. Mm-hmm. You know what what got us through that our, our miscarriage, our most recent one anyway, we had one before, we were believers too, but what got us through it um, was our trust that there was meaning and there was purpose in in this terrible calamity that was befalling us, which we couldn't have done if we didn't believe in Calvinism yeah. and, and meticulous providence. And as it turns out, we got a peek at what that purpose eventually proved to be because um, uh, several years later, my wife, my wife and I tell the story in the book, my wife was in Scotland on a trip and she was on a train with her friend And they met this other couple there and they got to know them. And they, uh, they found out over the course of their time for several days with this other couple that they had just lost their miscarried their first pregnancy the day before they left for this trip to Scotland and their trip was, they were sad. They were depressed, obviously grieving. And yet my wife was able to minister to this other woman and her husband because she had lost children. She had lost, she had miscarried. We both had miscarried and, um, and, and so she was able to bring, a, 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 she was able, able to help this other person to in, experience some level of enjoyment of this uh, trip with her husband that they had been been planned, despite the fact that they just lost their child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say that, yeah, exactly. The only way we can see meaning and purpose in in evil um, is if we affirm this view of God. And I think it's a much better view than if we just say God, even though he could have stopped this or that gratuitous evil, he lets it happen anyway. Um, for what Armenians will typically say is this grander purpose of um, giving human beings libertarian free a- free agency, right? They'll say that the greater good that God uh, that motivates God to allow gratuitous evil to happen is libertarian freedom. But I think few of us are going to find that very consoling in the midst of pain and suffering and grieving. On the other hand, if we believe that that pain and that grieving and that suffering is inherently purposeful because God has foreordained it, that's a much uh, more com- uh, comforting and consoling view.
1: Right. All right. And I, and I, what I enjoy about that answer, and I suppose critics of reform theology or Calvinism specific, <laughs> yeah. uh, would probably have problems with, and I'm, I'm thinking someone like Leighton flowers, great guy, but I mean, he is never shy to share his, uh, his dislike for Calvinism as a system. Although admittedly he does like Calvinists Um Um, There is a very strong pastoral aspect to all of this. On the one hand, we can talk very abstractly and very philosophical and theologically about these issues. But when you boil down to kind of the real life, you know, rubber hits the road situation, these things have profound indications uh, for us at a personal level. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. And that's why I appreciate you giving the backstory because you've connected your theology with kind of the dirt of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that's a very helpful thing to, uh, to keep in mind. All right. Now, before I get to my next question, um, is it, would you be okay with answering some questions Please. in the comments here? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's start up at the top here. So Tyler, um, uh, mentioned here, he says, uh, a, a tough question, a good tough question, I think posed against our view, Tyler's a Calvinist as well, uh, is that if Christ accomplished atonement on the cross, does that mean we are saved from the cross or saved at conversion. So I think it's this issue of when are we saved? Are we saved when Christ died on the cross or are we saved when we believe?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I take at face value the biblical texts that say that we are saved by grace through faith. We are not, um, salvation isn't experienced uh, subjectively at the very least until we uh, experience saving faith. And by the way, that's part of the reason, not the only reason, but it's part of the reason why I'm not one of these Calvinists who think that, infants and the unevangelized and things like that are saved, I, I think that salvation comes through by grace through faith. And so, uh, you know, and, and so I've told people, I know this is going to sound really um, hard-hearted or cold-hearted, but I don't expect to see my miscarried children in eternity because they didn't ex- express saving faith. But but anyway, putting that aside, so that, so number one, I take at face value the text that say we're saved by grace through faith, not saved by grace um, by atonement, and then we believe in it. Um, And and so then the question becomes, well, then what is the relationship between the atonement and the salvation? And I think, number one, we can say that uh, the atonement is what... uh, the atonement is the grounds by which we are saved by grace through faith. It's it's in other words, it's it's because Christ has taken our place and suffered what we deserve or suffered what was coming to us as a result of our sin. And, and because of that, we can therefore uh, be um, declared innocent. Uh, he having borne the punishment or the fate that we suffer or that we deserved uh, in our place. And number two, I think we can say that it's the fact that Christ died for the elect that guarantees that God will bring about the conversion of that elect. And so it's by virtue of what Christ did on the cross for me that uh, that the Holy Spirit then regenerated me. Uh, admittedly, many thousand, you know, a couple thousand years after the atonement was done. Uh, but nevertheless, it was on the basis of that atonement that I was converted Um, by the Holy Spirit, and it's the basis upon which having been converted, I am subsequently saved. So I think it's just the difference between, um, you know, what it is that, uh, what it is, what is grounded by the work of Christ on the cross, and when that which it grounds is applied. If that, right. if that if that distinction helps.
1: Sure. Now you you did say something that was very quick and very perhaps shocking for people and we won't we won't concentrate on it because that's not the goal here. Uh, but just to give a heads up, um you did mention your particular belief in regards to infants. Uh and that is a, a topic that is debated. within that's right. Not to share that view. right. right. I, I do not hold to that view, but I would uh, clarify that is your perspective. And yeah. you, I'm sure, would be willing to defend that. And that's a, a different discussion and debate for another day. So I um, uh, just wanted to throw that out there for people who might have like, well, wait, is that what? Yeah. wait a second. You know, I just wanted to throw that caveat. All right. We have another question here. Uh, Let me see if I can pop this up here. There we go. Does God choose us arbitrarily? Now, I guess he's speaking in regards to election, the idea of predestination and election. God chooses from before the foundation of the world. Does God choose us arbitrarily, like pulling names out
0: of a hat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer is no. And, and despite the fact that the answer to that question is no, people like Leighton Flowers constantly throw this, word, this objection around that somehow our view makes God arbitrary. I love Leighton, and I don't mean any insult by it, sure. but he's been refuted on this uh, you know, before, and yet I think he keeps pulling it out. Um, so... And, here's, and, and, and this is the reason why Leighton feels justified throwing around the word arbitrary. It's because he thinks that one legitimate, common use of the word arbitrary by people is no evident reason. Um, that simply if you don't know what the reason for a choice might ha- happen to, to be, you know, if, if you see somebody make a choice and you just don't know what the reason could possibly be, that means it was arbitrary. Um, And of course, we would say that in many cases, we don't know for what reason, or in in all cases, we don't know for what reason God has chosen um, this or that elect person over this or that non-elect person. Um, And and so Leighton feels justified, therefore, in saying that, um, yes, in our view, God's choice to save the elect is arbitrary. But I don't think that's a legitimate definition of the word arbitrary. Arbitrary doesn't just mean that there's no uh, discernible reason. It means that there's no reason. Right, it's just uh, it's it's drawing names out of a hat or flipping a coin or or just eeny meeny miny mo. But we don't believe that that's how God works. God God's reason for choosing this or that elect person isn't um, uh, based on something about or something uh, some quality of. That this or that person, and, or, or what it is that they'll do. That's what we believe, that God's choice to save a person has absolutely nothing to do with who that person is, what that person's character is, what that person has done or might do or will do or anything like that. God's uh, The basis upon which God makes his choice of whom to save is entirely in himself and in his own will, and his own purposes, in his own um, desires. And we often, if not always, cannot discern what that is, but that doesn't make it arbitrary. Now, there's one other thing that I'll just say, and, and this is something that I've been meaning to develop into something like a paper, hopefully one day. But there's there's another reason why arbitrary isn't a good word to describe this choosing. And that's because arbitrary is typically a word that we use to describe when we just pick from, uh, pick a certain subset of a pre-existent number of things. So you've got a bunch of Um, you know, uh, uh, objects on a table, they're already there in front of you, you put some of them, push some of them left, and some of them to the right, and your choice of which one's going to go on which side is arbitrary. But I don't think that we would say, as Calvinists, that God takes a, uh, he creates humanity, and then having created humanity, he then uh, chooses some subset of humanity to be his elect. No, that's definitely not the view that we see in, for example, Romans 9 to 11, where the analogy is more like God, God's very creation of the elect is uh, the act of creating them for a purpose. Um, and so now, so let's let's go back to my attempt at an analogy. And Leighton always, we, we Calvinists often give Leighton um, flack for using analogies. I, do, I try not to because I, I use analogies too. I just like to base my analogies on scripture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but you a know a gentle jab, a gentle uh, jab. Exactly. If he ever sees this. <laughs> exactly. But you know, so so take for example, uh, you've got a lump of dough, and out of that lump of dough, you you pull off one piece of dough and you form a uh a bowl into which people are going to urinate and defecate in their bathroom, right? And this is kind of the analogy that Paul uses in Romans 9 to 11. right? Um But another part of that, another, uh, he takes out another lump of clay, uh, a lump of dough out of it, or another piece of dough out of it, and forms it into um, some some object for righteous purposes. Maybe maybe uh, 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 one of the utensils that the um, priests would use in the temple during their sacramental work. Well, God hasn't arbitrarily chosen to take one object and make it um, useful in the sacraments. Uh, well, the priestly sacraments, and another object, and use it to, as a as a um, human waste bucket in the back corner of somebody's room. No, the very in the very process of tearing pieces of dough off the larger lump, he's he's cr- he's crafting them into those purposes. And then I don't think arbitrary even really applies to begin with. He's not choosing from among pre-existing things. He's creating things with the purpose of this or that you know final purpose. So for all of those reasons I think that the the arbitrariness objection just does not hold up under scrutiny.
1: Okay. Uh one more question and then we'll move on to my my original line of questioning. Uh we have a question here um did God create the majority of people for the sole purpose of sending them to hell? That's a common that's a common one when you think in terms of how people popularly understand or commonly understand predestination and people are like, "Well, what's the point or what's the purpose of this person uh being created if if God you know, or doesn't ordain them to eternal life.
0: Right. Yeah, this is a common objection and it's a really foolish one. And I'm just being, I'm just being honest. in a qu- Qualification. The person who sent the question says, this is a question my Arminian friend asked, yes. not mine. So. No, no, but, but it is a foolish question because, okay. and the reason is because whenever has a Calvinist said that the only purpose for which God creates somebody is their final destination? Hmm. No Calvinist has said that that, the, you know, that, that the entire span of human history up until the judgment is meaningless in God's eyes, and the only real thing that has any purpose is where they end up going. That would be the the that would be the the assumption that one would have to have in order to ask could or to object on the grounds that God somehow created a, millions of people only in order so that they would go to hell um, and there be destroyed, not given immortality and live forever in torment. Uh, we need to have the conversation sometime, Eli. But um, no, no, we would we would say that God has purpose in every moment of every person's life uh, that He creates. Uh, some you know, and 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 it's. They, their purpose in, in, many, in many cases may be so that they can, as God's divine image bearers, experience the the so many of the good things that God gives to all His creatures in life, including life and breath and everything Paul says at the Areopagus. Their purpose can include um, uh, being a part of the process by which God reveals His character. To the elect, uh, the process by which the elect are given the opportunity to um, exercise some of those divine qualities I mentioned earlier—mercy, grace, forgiveness, things like that—there's there's a whole host. I mean, I just I just gave the example of um, how uh, my wife's uh, 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 miscarriage had a purpose in it, in that she was able to console this other Christian couple that was going through a similar issue. Um, e- even if my uh, even if our um, miscarried child does end up going to hell uh, and destroyed there, it doesn't mean that that his or her, well, actually, I know it was a boy, that his going to hell was the sole purpose of his having been created. No, he had this other purpose in time as well. So, yeah, I I would just encourage people who object on this for this reason, this idea that the sole purpose that God created the, the wicked is to send them to hell. I would just encourage them to, to realize that there's much more to human history and human purpose than just what happens at the end. Okay.
1: All right. Thank you for that. Um, all right. So let me get back to my main line of questioning, uh, common objections. And th- those are good questions. And, and each answer that you've given, uh, there could obviously be more in-depth in sure. look into those issues. And uh, sometimes an answer to a question will produce more questions, uh, which Unfortunately, you're not going to get the answers to all of them because question after question after question, we'd have to be omniscient, because uh, we'll keep asking. Um, so be that as it may, uh, those who are continuing to ask questions, keep them coming, and hopefully, at some point, um, we can get to some of them, and uh, and hopefully, they uh, Chris can provide a satisfying answer to uh, uh, to those questions. Probably not, <laughs> but I'll try. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, all right. So getting back to this idea of of Calvinism, and in terms of definitions, I think a lot of people. Um, sometimes think of Calvinism as being equivalent uh, to determinism or equivalent to some metaphysical explanation as to how those things work together. What do you think if you think there, uh, the problem is with equating Calvinism, the theology, with determinism uh, as it relates to a specific metaphysical account as to how all of these issues relate to each other? God's sovereignty, human freedom. Does the Calvinist, is the Calvinist committed When he says, I'm a Calvinist, is he committed to a specific metaphysical account as to how sovereignty and freedom fit together?
0: No, definitely not. Um, I I do think more Calvinists should be willing to just simply accept the reality that they are determinists. You know, there are a lot of Calvinists or at least Calvinists who affirm meticulous divine providence like I do. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of them who, who would shy away from the word determinism but I don't think they should do so. I think they should just bite the bullet and accept the reality that they're determinists. The question is not whether we're determinists, the question is what kind of determinists we are. Um, there's, uh, you know, philosophers who work in the um, in the realm of determinism, they distinguish between different kinds of determinism. Um, the one that is very often discussed simply because it would be, it's the only kind that Um, that atheistic and secular philosophers can conceive of is materialistic determinism or or mechanistic determinism. It's the idea that everything that takes place in time is the inevitable result of a a chain of causes and effects that goes back to the very moment of the big bang. Right. Um, So, so in this account of things, whatever I do at any given point in, in time was invariably, um, uh, determined by what happened in my brain immediately moments, you know, in the milliseconds prior to that. And that is the inevitable um, co- effect of cause, the cause of my eyes transmitting signals to my brain based on the light that came into the eyes and so forth. So we've got this, this series of causes and effects stretching backward in time. That's, that's a, a, a secular atheistic materialistic account of determinism. And we certainly don't believe that. Um, But we do think, those of us who embrace divine, uh, meticulous divine providence, do think that God uh, determines every single thing that takes place in time. Um, But the means by which he brings about um, whatever he has foreordained, is something that we very often have no uh, idea of. You know, we don't have any access to what that might have been. So in some cases, God will use cause and effect, I think, to bring about what he fore, has foreordained. But in other, other cases, he'll use divine intervention, right? He'll step in and give um, uh, the, the, the Pharaoh a dream so that he doesn't take Abram's wife. Right, God, God will step in yeah. t- in time to intervene and bring about what He has foreordained, and in other cases, He'll use um, uh, uh, what what you know in order to bring about the the scriptures. For example, uh, Peter, I think it is, describes God's Holy Spirit as sort of s- sweeping up the authors of Scripture and 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 moving in them to write what they write. The exact you know metaphysics behind that the exact mechanism by which god does that is not clear to us but it's definitely something more than mere cause and effect right Mm -hmm. um and on and on we could go so i think that yes as as calvinists who believe in meticulous providence we, we we should embrace the label determinism but we believe in theological or divine determinism not materialistic or mechanistic determinism and i think that makes a big difference here's one example um uh, our friend, or my friend—I I don't know if you know him personally—but Justin Brierley, the host of uh, *Unbelievable*, he recently had a debate in which he argued against atheism on the grounds of libertarian free will. He said that um, he said that uh, if you don't have, if if your um, thoughts are just the results of cause and effect stretching backward in time, then you have no reason for thinking that your thoughts are logical. You know that they're rational, or or that your conclusions are, are legitimate, and the reason is because there's no logic, no rationality being exercised in this chain of causes and effects, right? But if God is the one who determines what takes place, and if He uses a variety of means, very often uh, means that we don't know what they are, then a then the quintessential logical mind is the one who's bringing about um, the the processes of thinking in our minds, and and so. Uh, yes, our thoughts are still determined in that sense, but they're not determined in that mechanistic cause and effect way that it is in atheism. And so our form of determinism escapes that, that challenge, um, the, the challenge from uh, rationality.
1: So so what do you do with, with someone to say, well, well, big whoop, that's a lot of vocabulary and a lot of terminology, like what's the difference? I mean, on a, on a, a naturalistic, mechanistic, deterministic outlook, I have no more control over my choices than on theological determinism. God determines I cannot do otherwise, mm. uh, and so there's there's no difference. You're just kind of uh, you know pulling the wool over my eyes, and so you can support your you know your evil doctrine. You know how the conversations sure. grow. Sure. How would you how would you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would just respond by saying, look, I'm not trying to pull a, a wool over your eyes or or play smoke and mirrors games or anything like that. I'm just simply being trying to be precise, and the argument against uh atheism on the grounds that our thought processes cannot be rational if they're just the you know the 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 invariable effects of a, of a previous chain of causes and effects that are, that objection if we're going to be precise isn't really about what is determined or the fact that it's determined it's about the means by which it's determined mm-hmm. right the, the this this chain of causes and effects that i've described through time is mindless it's it's uh, a ration, rationalityless right it's 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 simply mechanistic physical processes oh. and yeah i think if you say that a decision is the inevitable result of just simply mechanistic you know physical processes yeah that's irrational there you can't you can't have any trust that you're making rational you're exercising rational thought but again that's because that's not because it's determined it's because of how it's determined mm. so i'm just trying to be precise Um, And if, in being precise, I expose a a flaw or a weakness of Calvinism, I'm happy to discuss it. But just simply saying that I'm um, uh, pulling wool over their eyes or something or playing word games just simply is factually untrue. I'm just simply focusing like a laser beam, to use the language of Michael Medved, on the actual issue at hand, the actual thing that matters. And in this particular objection, the issue that matters is not the determinism—it's the means by which the determinant the determination is brought about.
1: Okay. Now, what about the epistemological issue that if I'm determined to believe something, how do I know if what I'm believing is actually the case? Since it may be the case that God has preordained that I would believe this falsehood, how do we yeah. escape that? You know, you have people saying that if determinism is true, you'd have no rational justification to affirm determinism because our our thoughts and every process within the the chain of thoughts, they're all determined by God. So that's something that's commonly brought up. It's that even if it's true, there's no justification for believing it since the entire rational process that brought you to that conclusion was itself determined.
0: Well, firstly, in our view, unlike the mechanistic form of determinism I described a moment ago, it's a mind, it's a perfectly logical mind that is doing the determining. Um, But secondly, and more importantly, arguably, um, Even if we are willing to embrace, as I am, and I think you are, that what we believe at any particular point in time is we we believe it ultimately because God has foreordained it, that doesn't mean that we don't have reasons that we can point to for why we think this or that thing is true. And if if you've got a, let's say that you've got a logical syllogism, you know, premise one, premise two, therefore conclusion, Um, the conclusion may have been foreordained, and we we might discover that we were wrong, but we can still check to see if that conclusion does indeed follow from the premises and whether the premises do in fact reflect reality. Um, so it, it's important to, again, to, to be precise, to distinguish between the thing that is determined, which is the choice, and the basis in time upon which we make that choice, which can indeed be checked for uh, to make sure that it's logically valid. Um, we might Certainly, it's possible that God has foreordained us to misevaluate, to incorrectly evaluate the the um, premises and conclusions. Uh, but we can check to see if that's the case. Other people can look at the, the thinking we've done and see if those premises do in fact lead to the conclusion that are true. And so, no, I don't think it, the objection holds up. All
1: right, very good. Um, so let's let's kind of narrow in on. Um issues relating to soteriology specifically. So we kind of Mm. talked broadly about, uh, the metaphysics of Calvinism or some options that people have in regards to how to understand the metaphysics of Calvinism.
0: By the way, side note, do you know where the word metaphysics 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 comes from?
1: Uh, Beyond physics. yeah, that's right. so
0: it, it, I don't remember if it was uh, I passed, okay Yeah, I don't I don't remember if it was uh, Plato or Aristotle or, or one of those there those uh, those philosophers, but literally metaphysics was came after physics in the um in like the library, right? It, on a shelf, you would first have these studies on physics or whatever, and then you'd have what comes after physics. Uh, would be the metaphysics. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just
1: thought that was an interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, but but we have been talking about the metaphysics of determinism and what what that entails and the questions that people pose when those issues come up. Uh, let's narrow in a little bit more on the issues of soteriology. But before we do that, uh, we're going to take a few more questions, if that's okay. And yeah. then we'll move on. Uh, you don't mind me going in and out of the... Of- all. all right, cool. You're a nice and easygoing type of guy. All right so uh the question here someone wrote how does a calvinist viewpoint deal with the ideas of occasionalism the idea that flipping a coin to tell you what to do is a good idea let me actually put this up here okay Uh, how does a calvinist viewpoint deal with ideas of occasionalism the idea that flipping a coin to tell you what to do is a good idea as god set up the coin flip i'm not sure this person is using occasionalism correctly as, as to how I understand occasionalism. But how do you understand occasionalism, Chris, um, as you're just reading this question just at the, at its, on its face?
0: Well, so I'm first of all not familiar with the term occasionalism and what it means. So you can come in after me and, and unpack what you would have said that to mean. But, okay. in terms of, but in terms of the question as expressed, you know that 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 it must be good to let a coin flip determine what you do because God has set up the coin flip or predetermined whether it would land on heads or tails, whatever. The problem is that that assumes that everything that God foreordains in time is is healthy for us, is wise for us, is the you know is is. Consistent with his prescribed will, you know we, we, we Calvinists distinguish, and I think everybody needs to distinguish between at least two kinds of wills of God. There's there's God's perfect will, that which He foreordains in time, that which He He you know when God speaks, it says, "Let there be light." Light simply is. There's no there's there's no prescription there. It's it's God's perfect will, His secret will, whatever. And then there's His prescriptive will, the, the will that you know His His desire that somebody's uh, not sin. You know, because God uh, values holiness and righteousness. Well, if we are consistent in our Calvinism, we believe that God foreordains not only those actions that conform to his prescribed will, but also, also those actions that go against his prescribed will, his revealed will. And in the same way, uh, if God foreordains that a uh, flip of the coin, that the coin when it's flipped lands on heads rather than tails, that doesn't necessarily mean that the that the choice that you've sort of attached to heads falls in line with god's revealed or prescriptive will it may it does align with his perfect or secret will but not his revealed or prescriptive will mm-hmm. um and so you know frankly i think the, the the apostles may have been doing something a little bit um unwise in casting lots you know in acts chapter two i think it is to determine who's going to take judas's place because mm-hmm. What what the lot often lands on, what the die often lands on, may not in fact be in line with God's prescribed will. That's how I would answer that
1: question. Okay. Yeah, uh, just real quick, as the basic definition of occasionalism as I understand it, uh, the do- it is the doctrine ascribing the connection between mental and bodily events to the continuing intervention of God. God continually intervenes in everything that we do such that we really don't have free will in that sense. For example, some people who hold to a position known as occasionalism would say, for example, the ear is not necessarily made for hearing, but on on the occasion— that uh, sound enters the ear canal, God then intervenes and communicates knowledge about the world around them and things like that. So it is a particular view of how God communicates revelation to us on the occasion of, Mm -hmm. say, the the utilization of our senses and things like that. It's usually uh, related to discussions on uh, empiricism. Uh, Does knowledge come through the senses? Well, people who would reject that knowledge comes through the senses, they'll say, when you touch the table, there is no information being communicated per se, rather God on the occasion of you touching the table will communicate to your mind something that's true about the external world. Oh, so I see. so there's a whole, I think uh, Jonathan Edwards held to something similar to that and some others as well. So that's how I was understanding it. Maybe uh, there's some relation in there. So we got to be careful how we use our vocabulary terms because <laughs> they can mean a wide range of things. All right. So let's, uh, did you have a comment on that, Chris? Nope. nope. Okay, let's let's go to one more question and then we'll con- focus more on the soteriological questions um, and then we'll wrap things up. Okay, let's see here. So uh, here's another question. If Leighton Flowers uh, denies the effect of the fall such that people are capable of purely motivated good works apart from any need for regeneration or grace, isn't he espousing heterodoxy?
0: Yeah, I mean, my meager understanding of church history is that uh, the the need for grace um, is indeed defined, you know, declared to be essential to orthodoxy. I don't know to what extent Leighton's beliefs reject that need for grace. Um, yes, I think that he um, denies at least certain understandings of original sin. You know, I, I think he denies certain... Um, he denies that people are, he denies prevenient grace, for example, you know, the Arminian uh, peanut butter, as James White calls it, where you just spread it on there and boom, you've got a problem solved, just slap prevenient grace on there. No, he, he denies that people need a, a work of grace uh, on the part of the Holy Spirit in order to believe. But he, I think, would say that the act of, or, or that the the preaching of the gospel is the grace of that enables a person to believe in the gospel and so somebody more knowledgeable about church history would have to determine whether his belief that the go- that the that the preaching of the gospel is what enables a person to believe uh fails to qualify um under the, those boundaries of orthodoxy that were set in the ancient mm-hmm. church Okay, all right. That's
1: uh, thank you for that. Whoever I don't remember. I kind of scrolled down who asked the question, but thank it you, Mr.
0: Kyle's vids.
1: No, all right. Yeah, he he looks like he has a lot of questions. That that's good though. These topics are are they can be challenging, and uh, that that's that's fine. All right, so let's uh, zero in on some soteriological issues. Now, when we think of Calvinism, when a lot of people think of Calvinism, they think of a soteriological system, which I think is it's much broader than that. Um, I've heard often people say that Calvinism is a soteriological system uh but then you know uh, there's some other position in which it's just a a broader theology. I think Calvinism is broad uh in one sense and it has a certain application which it's most infamous for <laughs> right the uh the infamous uh, tulip acronym or roses, however, whichever acronym one follows. Um, But let us take a look at the first uh, uh, point of the five points of Calvinism, which is total depravity. Can you define uh, for us what is total depravity and how is it linked together with the idea of total inability? And can can you provide very briefly, uh, again, this is kind of just an introduction sort of thing. Can you provide for us briefly uh, a biblical support for our definition of total depravity? And maybe a verse or two in support of the idea of being of total inability.
0: Sure. Uh, well, and, and first of all, I just want to say you might want to take down Mr. Kyle's vid's question from the. Yes, from the scene, there we go. Thanks. We're no longer on that question. Um, <laughs> Good so, uh, so here I'm open to correction, um, but my understanding is that total depravity is the view that sin infects everything that we are and do. Um, It doesn't mean that we're as depraved as we possibly could be, but it does mean that there's no choice we make, no thought we have that is not to one degree or another affected by and and infected by our sin. Um, And so, for example, um, I might, for many pure motivations, motivated by many pure reasons, I might give to this or that charity. In fact, I I do. My, My wife and I Um, We have a uh, we've adopted, so to speak, uh, a couple of kids in Honduras. We provide monthly finances or whatever. It helps them to receive medicine and food and education and stuff like that. And that feels great. And we love that we're able to help these kids out that are in such need. And so there's there is pure motivations there. But i but i can't pretend as if there's not a part of me that thinks oh it's nice to be able to deduct that from my taxes every year right or it, it it's nice it feels good to know that I'm doing this for them well that's that's a selfish motivation not a selfless one right and there are other ones that can be identified as well even even with somebody um who does amazing things like say um uh, uh, martin luther King jr right he was incredibly well motivated to do what he was doing but our view, as, as people who believe in the total depravity of man, would say that even those great things that Martin Luther King Jr. did were in part motivated by impure reasons, by impure motivations. Um, so that's total depravity. Um, and uh, I would say that um, passages in Romans that say that no one does good, no, not one. You know, um, we all fall short of the glory of God. Um, you know, uh, Jeremiah, the, the heart, I think it's Jeremiah who says the heart is... Um, uh, wicked and 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 you know deceptive beyond all else. I'm I'm obviously paraphrasing here. Uh, uh, God saw w- w- at the time of the flood that the heart of man was was evil and 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 you know was committed to all sorts of evil things. Um, there's there's just this these host of passages. Uh, you know, um, David I think it is in one of his psalms says that I was uh, conceived in sin. You know, um, there's just all throughout the scriptures it's very clear that human beings are um, uh, they are oriented away from God to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Paul says we were by nature children of wrath. You know, so so there's just there's a host of uh, uh, of a variety of ways in which Scripture seems to indicate that our um, we are uh, infected by sin in these ways. Now, as for total inability. I think, and again, this is why I say I'm open to correction. I think total inability is the idea that uh, nothing we are totally unable to do anything that is um, pleasing to God uh, and and or 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 truly good or righteous uh, or or anything like that. for precisely the reason that I just described about total depravity, That is to say, because sin affects and infects every single thing we think or do, then we're unable to do anything that is of the kind of righteous quality that is needed to be truly pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not identical. Total depravity isn't identical to total inability, but the two do go hand in hand. Because we're totally depraved, we are totally unable to do anything that is completely pleasing to God.
1: So one implies the other. Total, if total That's depravity right. is true, as the Calvinist understands it, then total inability is something that follows from that.
0: Right, and and as far as biblical support for the total inability, I mean just you know, is it Isaiah who says that all our works are 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 like filthy rags? Mm-hmm. Right? Um and and the, and the language there filthy rags for some of your your viewers may not know. He's not just talking about like a a, a rag that you use to clean up some dirt. I mean, he's talking about menstrual rags, right? So, so even the the most amazing things that we do. Let's are keep like, it PG, right.
1: man. All right, we got to keep it PG. I said
0: menstrual. I didn't. There, there, keep... there, were, there were twenty people watching. Now there's fifteen. Yeah, you know, right, you right.
1: scared people away. Right. So yeah.
0: So anyway, so I, I would say that that's an example of biblical support for the idea that nothing we do is truly purely good. Okay. All
1: right. Very good. Well, what about um, what about when Jesus says, you know, that ev- even even uh, evil people know how to do what's good. Right when when someone when when a son asks a father for uh, a piece of bread, you know, the father doesn't give uh, the kid a rock or something like that. Or um, Cornelius, Cornelius was a uh, Gentile, and uh, God appeared to him. It said that he was that he was righteous. That the people of Israel, you know, they liked him. How would we um, respond to some of these biblical examples of what seems to be these people who are not? saved but are said to do good things. Mm. How would you respond to something like that?
0: Well, I'd be interested in how you would respond, but I would start with two thoughts that come to mind. Number one, there's a difference between uh, a good act and a person doing that act for perfect reasons. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, as, as a father, I know how to give my son who asks for bread bread rather than a snake or a rock or whatever. Um, but oftentimes I'm giving him what he asks for, even though it's a good thing because I'm, uh, sick and tired of hearing him ask for it or something. Right. Or because I'm trying to get him to do something I want him to do or, or for some other reason, you know, in other words, an act can be good, but we could be, we could have something less than pure motives for doing it. Mm. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is that, um, we would say, I think that anytime somebody does something good, it's because God is working in them to, to do that good. There's nobody who's doing anything good where God has an entirely hands-off approach. I, I think that anything good in life is because God is involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it had not been for God moving within us to do the good thing, I think um, we would have done far worse. In fact, many of us would say that God is restraining the evil that many people would, would like to do. Um, and if he hadn't been restraining them, they would do the evil that they want to do. Uh, so with those two distinctions in mind, number one, the distinction between a good act and good reasons for doing it. And number two, the distinction between somebody doing a good thing all on their own versus doing a good thing because God is at work as well. I think those two distinctions help us to answer that objection.
1: Right. And I, and I like to make the distinction between horizontal goods and vertical goods. Uh, I'm uh, not... Yes. I'm not uh, imposing philosophical terminology upon the Scripture because the Bible is not a philosophical text. It's not going to always make these distinctions. Uh, But if we take, for example, the didactic passages of Scripture, which provide for us the metaphysical explanation as to how this all works in relation to man's ability and how God works into all those things, I think it's very clear that someone who's not born of the Spirit or not being aided in some way, shape, or form by the Spirit of God is going to be able to do that which is pleasing to God. Mm -hmm. So, So we make the distinction between horizontal good, good as it relates from man to man. So generally speaking, a man who gives his son a piece of bread as opposed to a stone, generally speaking, that's good. Spiritually speaking, that's not good in the sense that it gains him points with God. And so I would say we'd make those sorts of distinctions because the didactic portions of scripture, which tell us metaphysically how this all works, that is the background music that needs to be playing when we engage in these kind of Historical examples where a person does something nice for someone and is not a believer, that theological explanation is playing in the background of our minds so that we could understand what's really going on there. I think it's an interesting thing that many people who object to Calvinism, when they try to find counterexamples, they they use counterexamples of historical events and historical circumstances instead of just going straight to the didactic theological explanations given in Scripture as the main primary soil out of which the belief is should be springing out of. And so I think that's a that's an issue that we need to keep in mind.
0: I think that's helpful. Uh, The only thing I would just add as a caveat is that I still think that even in the horizontal goods you're describing, um, our, our, our motives are never pure.
1: Sure. Sure. Sure.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, um, good. So, so now you said something,
1: uh, that produced another question that I think comes up often. Um, God is restraining evil, but I've often heard that why is God restraining evil? If God ordained the evil that, that, that is in the heart of man. Uh, what is he restraining his own decrees? I mean, what what's going on? You've heard this before. Um, how would you respond to something like that?
0: Well, notice that when I mentioned the restraining a moment ago, I said, some of us believe. I'm not sure I include myself among them. You know, it's uh, there. there is a sense in which, you know, um, God may prevent somebody from doing what he or she would like to do that's even worse than what he permits them to do. But as Calvinists, I think we believe that God foreordained even their desire to do those worse things, right? So in what sense does it really make sense to talk about God restraining a person from doing um, X, uh, even though he foreordained that they would want to do X? In fact, he's not even He's not even in, in any way inhibiting them from, like, it's not as, even as if they're trying to do X and God prevents them from being able to. No, their very decisions um, are foreordained by God in our view. And so I do think that here, um, our critics have some uh, a basis for an objection if we want to use the language of restraining. I steer clear from it because I think because for precisely the reason that I believe in meticulous divine providence. Now, I will say that um, the Calvinist philosopher Guillaume Bignon, whose book "Excusing Sinners, Blaming God" is a fantastic book, and I would highly good encourage
1: good Calvin- pronunci- good pronunciation. By the way, I see people massacre that
0: name. <laughs> so, I, 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 I've tried to self-study uh, uh, French a little bit, so I'd like to think I have at least a tiny bit of good pronunciation. Okay, but um, but in the book, he actually does try to philosophically and logically reconcile um, God restraining or passing over this kind of language that some Calvinists use. With meticulous providence, I'm just not convinced that that reconciliation is possible. Sure. So this is so I would just simply personally bite the bullet and say, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think God does in fact restrain anybody's evil, um, even even if phenomenologically it looks that way.
1: Good. And I, and I like how you caveat with some people hold to. And again, there's it's not just Calvinism believes A, B, and C, and all Calvinists agree. And you know, it's not even to say that I've necessarily agreed with everything you've said. I just think that it's helpful to see different ways that people might understand this, and it might be helpful in answering some of those questions as people confront it. Um, now, now here's a, here's a common one, and these are kind of just pop examples, I and mean, we can go much deeper, but um, I don't know why you're arguing with me, man. God ordained for me to not be a Calvinist. How would you respond to
0: that? I would say that may be the case, but you don't know that that's the case, and it may be that the very means by which God has foreordained you to become a Calvinist is the conversation that we're having right now. You know, this is, this is a common trope, a, a common thing that people like Leighton does, and and I'll, he, he knows this, and, and hopefully he doesn't mind me saying it, but I told him privately, I said, look, I don't want to see that anymore on my Facebook comment threads because it really annoys the heck out of me. It's just a silly, childish objection that has been answered for, you know, centuries, and it really does no, it does conversations, no meaningful, you know, nothing meaningful in the first place. Um, but yeah, I think the key here is the distinction between what God ordains and the means by which he brings it about. And key to this is the reality that until um, until we die, at least, we don't know what God has in fact ordained. And it may be that God has foreordained you to not be a Calvinist at this very moment, but it doesn't. you don't know that he hasn't foreordained you to be a Calvinist 10 minutes from now after I persuaded you. And it may be that my my reasons for believing it are the very means by which God brings what He has foreordained about. All right. Well,
1: I don't know if I could be a Calvinist because, on your view, it looks like God doesn't love everyone, and I don't know if I could worship a God who is as callous as your God. How would you respond to something like that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I would agree. If, if if you if if God didn't love everybody, I'm not sure that that would be a God worth uh, worshipping either. Um, but our belief isn't that God only loves the elect. This is a uh, now. If Calvinists have spoken that way and in an unqualified way in, in church history, then I think they they made, uh, they were mistaken in so doing. But I think most of us Calvinists would say that, sure, God doesn't savingly love every human being, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't love every human being. Well, but wait a minute. But t- hold up,
1: Mr. Date. All right. OK. Savingly love. Uh- if we're not ever saved and God doesn't want to save us eventually, then in what way is it really love, right? This is the sort of stuff that, that you'll, you'll hear.
0: Well, this goes back to what I said uh, a while ago, which is that that objection stems from an extremely facile and myopic, um, focus on the state of affairs at the end to the complete, you know, uh, completely ignoring everything that has taken place prior to that point. Look, when, when I, um, How many, how many, you know, that phrase better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Sure. Sure. What's that trying to capture? It's trying to capture the idea that there was something valuable and inherently worthy in the relationship that somebody had for a while, even if at the end that relationship is severed. Um, Well, similarly, there's innate and inherent worth and value in life itself. In, in the relationships between people that God uh, gives us to enjoy with others, in um, serving others, in being served, in the amazing taste of a good meal, in the uh, uh, in the um, uh, intoxicating intoxicating aroma of a beautiful flower, or uh, you know something like that. You know, every moment of life is absolutely filled with amazing good experiences and God so loves every human being that he gives every human being at least those who are born let's say um and you know that raises the question about what about those who haven't who die in birth or in 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 uh, in the womb and I don't have a good answer for that but at least for people that are that are born their lifetimes are filled with good things and I think the only reason they're filled with good things is because God in fact does love them Mm -hmm. I think that in order to make this objection Somebody would have to say that life and breath and everything, as Paul says at Areopagus, isn't in fact a good gift from God. Mm -hmm. Because if you agree that life and breath and everything is in fact uh, the good gift of God, then you have to say that God does in fact love all of humanity, even if um, not all of humanity ends up savingly loved, loved unto eternal life.
1: Okay. Um, what about these verses in the Bible? Which, uh, for example, let, let's jump now. So we did total depravity and total inability. We kind of spoke about unconditional election throughout. Kind of just God's cho- cho- uh, choice to save some is not arbitrary, right? Um, and then uh, let's jump to the L real quick. Now we're going to move really quickly so that we don't. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I hope you don't mind. Kind of just this really simplistic. This is what I see. This is at at the academic level and the philosophical and theological level, these are not the things people are talking about per se, but this is what the average Calvinist hears. And I think it's still helpful to kind of go through these things. So let's jump to the L, which is limited atonement. Why don't you define for us what limited atonement is and answer this question from our hypothetical non-Calvinist. Hey man, you're telling me that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. I mean, how can you tell me this? The Bible is clear. He died for all he desires all to be saved and i don't see how this fits with your calvinist perspective how would you address those
0: sure limited atonement is the view that um, the atonement uh, the atoning sacrifice of christ has both a um particular scope and a particular effect the particular scope of the atoning work of christ is the elect and not all of humankind and it has an effect, name, uh, namely, it uh, maybe, maybe particular effect isn't the word I'm looking for. Unconditional effect is, is the language I want. I want to say, in our view, there is no condition that somebody has to meet first in order to um, be a uh, to receive the benefits of the atoning work of Christ. At least, not an effect that uh, a, a condition they have to meet through the exercise of their own libertarian free will, right? So everybody for whom Christ dies. Um, which is a subset of humanity. There, there's the particular particularity of its scope. Everybody for whom Christ dies, in our view, will uh, by necessity be saved. Um, that those are the two facets to limited atonement. And this, and, the, and by contrast, those who would believe in unlimited atonement, at least non-Lutherans, and I've recently discovered that Lutherans have a very bizarre view, and I'm not even going to try to address it here. But at least non-Lutherans who believe in unlimited atonement, what they would say is that um, the the scope of the atonement is universal, it's for all humankind, but it doesn't unconditionally affect the salvation of anybody. Only those who exercise their libertarian free will and thereby um, make the choice necessary to become partakers of the benefits of Christ's atoning work, only they are the ones who are saved. So the contrast then is between our view in which Christ's work is for a particular people and is unconditionally efficacious, Versus the other view in which Christ's work is for all people and is unconditionally efficacious for nobody at all. It's only it's only conditionally efficacious. And frankly, I think this is exactly why people like Leighton Flowers call themselves provisionalists, right? They think that the atoning work of Christ is universal in scope, and what it does is it makes provision for something. It doesn't actually save, at least not, I mean, they might object to me putting it that way, but I don't know how else to put it. Okay. Now, with that distinction in mind, does that mean that we don't think that Christ died for the world or, or for all? Of course not. Um, I think God saved the world, meaning God saved the human race when he destroyed all but Noah and his family in the flood. You know, if there was an astero- asteroid, if a scientist discovered an asteroid or a meteor on a um, crash course toward Earth, and the heads of the nations around the world got together and said, what are we going to do to save the human race And and maybe they come up with the only thing that they can do is to gather the DNA from, you know, as many thousands of people as they can get and maybe get a few living humans to get onto a spaceship with that, the DNA from all those people and fly off to another planet and terraform it. They have only saved the lives of a few people, but they've saved the human race, right? In that analogy, before the meteor or the asteroid comes and hits Earth and destroys the rest of humankind. So, yes, I think God saves the world, meaning he saves the human race. And, and uh, you know, being somebody who holds to my view of hell, I think I can say that with a little bit more consistency than you can. But putting that aside. Um, <laughs> Another so, jab. What's up with the jabs, bro? <laughs> I got to squeeze them in. I got to entice you to eventually have the discussion. That's, that's all right. That's um, all right. So, uh, so that's number one. Number two, the language of world is also meant to be inclusive of all kinds of people, not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Um, Not just the rich, but also the poor, Um, not just men, but also women, not just free, but also slaves, not just this, but also that, you know, the language of world is intended to capture the all inclusiveness of every kind of person you can imagine without necessarily being intended to, to capture the idea of every single person without exception. And I would say the same thing is true about the, the Greek word pas, translated all or each or every or whatever, is that more often than not, it really isn't about every single individual. It's about every single kind. And so in in you know uh, the example um, that you just gave a moment ago that God doesn't want anyone to uh, perish, he, he wills that nobody perish, but uh, repent. Uh, it, it's either in that passage or in another one, He it, it's right after Paul has said, pray for all sorts of people, even people in authority, you know, and people in power. He's not saying pray for every single person you come across as you're walking down the street. He's saying don't exclude from your prayers any particular kind of person. Um, and I think that's pretty representative of, of most uses of PAS in the New Testament. And so I would say that, yes, God does want all people to save, meaning, be saved, meaning he wants all kinds of people. He doesn't want to just save Jew. He wants to save Gentile as well. He doesn't just want to. Yeah, go ahead.
1: So in some contexts, it all doesn't mean all without exception, as, as we commonly say, but all without distinction. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's right. right. And, and of course, context will dictate what kind of all is being used there.
0: That's exactly okay? right.
1: All right. So uh, great. Again, the topic of limited atonement, very, very big topic. You just did a, de- uh, a nice debate on it uh, on the... Uh, the gospel truth show uh, with Marlon Wilson over there. Um, and uh, people can check that out as well. I think you did a good job.
0: I, uh, <laughs> I'm my no own worst critic, but yeah, yeah. I, 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 mean, I, to be clear, I think my opening is still very strong. I sure. just don't think that I did as well as I could have in what happened after the opening.
1: Fair enough. And, and, and overall uh, it. if anything, uh, they're helpful. I mean, yeah. we, we have uh, someone on the side here. Uh, we won't go through uh, questions just yet. Um, but uh some someone wrote here. Uh, wow, Calvinism is so dumb, and these guys didn't help their case. Well. Thank you, Hudson, TD777. Um, that's perfectly fine. Uh, if you don't think uh, Calvinism is true or, or supported, that you're well within your right to think that. But add more to the conversation. Why don't you uh, post a question uh, where you think uh, there was a weakness in the explanation or something like that? I think a good purpose for having discussions like this is to learn from, from each other. And, um, um, and I think iron sharpens iron in that case. And so if you have a question you want to pose, or an objection or something like that, feel free to share it. And hopefully uh, if we have time, we could address it to the uh, in the best possible way. All right, so thank you for that. All right, let's jump to the I and the P real quick. Um, just very, very lightning flash quick. And then uh, we'll take two or three questions and then we'll wrap things up. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right, are, how are you hanging in there? We've been on for an hour and 23 minutes, is it?
0: I'm in no hurry, I'm good to go.
1: Okay, all right, sounds good. Um, okay, so. Um, The I in tulip is irresistible grace. What is irresistible grace? And give me a scripture or two that you can use to kind of give a basic idea as to why Calvin is hold to the doctrine.
0: Yeah. Irresistible grace is a bit of a misleading phrase. We don't think that the the saving grace of God... Um, the regenerating grace of God is resisted but god overcomes their resistance that's not what we're saying we're saying that the the regenerative the regenerative grace of God the gr- the grace with which God regenerates the human heart and enables them to believe is effectual you know or effective there's there's it's not a simple wooing you know like a oh please be saved you know it's not like that like <laughs> like non-calvinists would often say it's it's a boom, your heart is replaced. Your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. It's effectual, right? So I prefer something like effectual grace.
1: But how could you say that? Isn't Jesus knocking on the door of the hearts of everyone? And please open up. If you just open up, man,
0: I'll come in and sup with you. Well, so I, I suspect that if we were to dig into that passage, we would find that the context has something else in mind. But, but, but that's it. but that's the idea with irresistible grace. It, it's effectual grace. It's it, it's grace by which God uh, supernaturally brings about the regeneration of an elect person. Now, what would be the basis for that? Biblical, biblically, I would offer two texts. One is in John six. Um, you know. Uh, Uh, Jesus is here interacting with people who question his identity and and are objecting to um, his claims. And he says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, You see, uh, Jesus is here making a one-to-one correlation between the one that the Father draws and the one that he will raise up on the last day unto eternal life. Um, There is no God draws you. And draws you, and woos you, and pleads with you, please come, and then maybe if you if you believe, then he will raise you. No, the one that he draws is the one who is raised. That's, that's effectual grace. The other place that I think is really helpful is the so-called chain, you know, the golden chain of, of salvation or redemption in Romans 8, uh, 29, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, and here the word foreknew, does not mean to know things about a person in advance, Sure. Um, I know that's how our non-Calvinists typically understand it, but they do so without any biblical justification whatsoever. The language of foreknowledge when the object is a person in in scripture has to do with a, 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 a loving relationship, a, a, a choosing to be in, relationship, in, be in relationship with somebody in advance. Okay. So those whom he foreknew, those whom he chose in advance to enter into a relationship with, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You've got this, the the same group of people is the same group of people all throughout that chain. The same group that is foreknown is a group that is predestined. The same group that is predestined is the same group to be called and so forth. So you've got this, there is no narrowing, you know, concentric circles, right? It's not like you've got those God calls some of whom respond, and so now this group, this smaller group, are the ones who are actually justified. No, it's the same group throughout. So these are two examples of, of, of I think, biblical support for the idea that those God foreknows or chooses in advance, he effectually brings about their salvation by regenerating them. It's, mm-hmm. it's irresistible in that sense, and that it's efficacious. It's, not, it's unconditional. You don't have to make some sort of choice to get covered by it.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, perseverance of the saints. What is That's- it? Give me some support for it.
0: It's just the idea that um, anybody who um, uh, th- th- anybody who has become saved will remain in saving faith until the judgment. It's it's really that simple. And and here again, perseverance of the saints might be a little bit misleading because we would say that the primary reason any saint perseveres in faith until the end is because God has um, ha- has made it so. He's he's granted them. Uh, He's regenerated them. He's uh, granted them faith in himself uh, and so on and so forth. And the God who begins this work isn't going to fail to complete it. Now, as for... Biblical support, I just sort of alluded to one. I don't remember what text it is, but it's where Paul says, the one who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the end. Um, we've got this language of, uh, that Paul uses to describe the double-fisted grasp with which he, the saints are held in salvation by both the Father and the Son. Um, we've got the, the biblical language of the Holy Spirit being inside of us as a seal or guarantee of our future resurrection into eternal life. Um, You know, these are all examples where um, it it seems as if the person who is truly born again doesn't need to be born again and 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 again. You know, they're born again once and they remain a new creature um, up until the moment that they are judged and and found innocent uh, because they've got the Holy Spirit as a seal inside of them because they're in the double fisted protection of God and so forth. Okay.
1: And so TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, we believe in those aspects with qualifications uh, because we believe it is the consistent teaching of Scripture. It can be defended scripturally, and there is there is even a logical flowing from from one into the other. I think there are logical connections there that I think are important. Uh, as well. Um, so uh, that would conclude kind of the summary of what Calvinism is. And you've, I think you've done a good job in addressing some of the common, um, uh, objections. There are many more, of course. Um, and so let's wrap things up uh, a bit by taking some of the last few questions and then, uh, and then we'll conclude. How does that sound?
0: That sounds great to me.
1: All right. Sounds good. And I apologize if I missed something in the comments, but, uh, okay. We, we did read the well, Calvinism is so dumb one. So that's, uh, we'll skip over that one. Um, John one forty seven says, when Jesus saw Nathanael, let me, let me put it up on the, on the screen here. Okay. Uh, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I think this is a cool question, which now the question is there. How should this verse be understood in light of total depravity? Good question.
0: Um, So first of all, it's interesting to me that Jesus appears to be alluding to Psalm 32.2 in the ESV. So in the ESV, John 147 says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And the almost identical language is used in Psalm 32.2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Um, The language here of somebody in whose spirit there is no deceit is somebody who uh, against whom the Lord doesn't count his iniquity. Um, This is very similar to the language that Paul alludes to in Romans 4, I think it is, when he talks about um, Abraham, and then he quotes uh, Psalm 32. He, He quotes this Psalm. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the picture here in Psalm 32 is not of somebody who lacks any sin. The picture here in Psalm 32 is somebody who is honest about his sin. And because this person is honest about his sin to God, God, uh, God doesn't hold it against them. He doesn't count it against them, against him. He forgives it. All right. So number one, I would say that just because this Israelite doesn't have any deceit in him doesn't mean that he's not totally depraved. Doesn't mean that he is not sinful. It just means at most that he's honest about his sin, hmm. um, just like this person in Psalm 32. Hmm. Number two, in a very just purely you know rigid way of reading the text. Just because, even if we wanted to read it in the way that our our questioner here in YouTube chat is asking it, meaning there literally is no deceit whatsoever in this Israelite, it doesn't follow that there aren't other sins, right? Deceit, deceitfulness is just one among many sins, and there's no reason to think that just because there's no deceit in this person, there's not other sins. Um, and finally, of course, there's the there's the the hyperbolic aspect of this, right? If you've, um, there, I, I think you could speak about somebody who is less. Overtly sinful than another person, even radically less sinf- overtly sinful than another person, and you could say, "Man, this is such a good person," but you just mean relative to you know all these other terrible people, and so it could be that in whom there is no deceit. Here, Jesus is just saying, compared to all you know these other Israelites, this is this is a really good guy. So I think those three things, and there are plausibly other explanations as well.
1: So so basically, Jesus was saying to Nathaniel, "Hey, he's a really good guy." Kind of yeah. Dead.
0: Yeah. But again, even if, even if somebody doesn't want to buy that, I think those are the other argument I gave sure. nullifies the objection.
1: All right. Good. Um, I love these kind of, uh, uh, <laughs> what's up with John six forty four? What's going on there? You know, uh, why do Calvinists say it demonstrates Calvinist beliefs? Well, first the person who asked the question has to clarify which Calvinist belief they're referring to. Um, but what might we think this person uh, might be referring to in, in John six, Forty-four. Let me find it and read it. I'm sure you have your screen in front of you there as well, but I'll just uh, find it here. Verse 44 of John chapter six says the following. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What makes you think, Chris, that that in any way, shape or form supports the Calvinist understanding of total inability? Maybe that's what the person's asking.
0: Well, I mean, to, the the total inability part of it seems to be pretty self-evident, right? Um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So number one, you've got a lack of ability for people to come to Christ unless, something, uh, unless someone intervenes. So there you've got the T. Um, you've got the election part, or you've got the irresistible grace here as well, because um, the word draw here, helkuo, doesn't mean like a wooing it doesn't mean like oh please come to me please it'll be so nice to you no it's it's the language that's used to describe peter pulling a net up out of the water with fish in it right or somebody drawing a sword from is from his sheath uh and and so on and so forth the language is is one of active movement not just a please please come to me so um so that would be this and not very often um uh non-calvinists will say yeah but the same word is used when in fact uh uh james white is currently doing a review of um who's the, the scottish or british philo- i don't know if you listen to the dividing line regularly um I mean, okay well we're right just recently he's been going through uh a scottish a well-known and brilliant scottish or, or english theologian who, who wrote a book called determined to believe or something like that i don't know if you know what i'm talking about let me look it up um uh, the sovereignty of God. This is uh, John Lennox. That's what I'm trying to think. Ah, uh, yes. Right.
1: I, why? Why didn't that pop up? I thought you were talking about a a, a Calvinist. Uh, John Lennox is all not right. a Calvinist, right? No, so he's not. Could, right. That's right. I know what right. you're saying.
0: Yeah. Well, so so in that book, he makes this very argument. He says it can, draws can't mean effectively moves here because Jesus elsewhere says, "I will when I am left it up, draw helkuo, augment myself." But, of course, we've already addressed the language of all God. Jesus will indeed, you know, in the context where he says that he has not yet been willing to speak to the Gentiles. And he's saying, but when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, not just Jew, but also Gentile. Um, so it's perfectly consistent with the language of drawing here as well it's not just a wooing it's it's a it's, a, it's an effective movement from one place to another um, and then as far as the perseverance of the saints look what he goes on to say the person whom he draws or the person who the father draws Christ will raise up on the last day so you've got the total inability you know that no one can come to me you've got the irresistible uh, irresistible grace the the father who sent me draws him and you've got the perseverance of the saints. The one so drawn um, will be raised up on the final day unto everlasting life. I, and, I, and I suspect that if we were to look deeper into this passage, we might even find the U and the L in there as well. But at the very least, we've got the 2 it right okay. there in one verse all by itself. All right. Well, we're almost
1: finished here. I think uh, Daniel uh, asks, is a very penetrating question, uh, Chris Date, what's up with all those subtle jabs? Uh, I agree. I don't know what's going on here every now and then. I mean. It's all right. I understand. Jesus still loves you. Uh, exactly. exactly. Uh, our last question uh, here is from Matt Yester. Uh, he is joking, but I think he is joking and making reference to uh, an interpretation of Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine through thirty, that is sometimes taken. I believe he is making reference to something maybe Leighton Flowers has uh, has said, um, and that is Romans nine. I'm sorry, Romans eight, chapter twenty-nine through thirty, which says the following. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, Romans 8.29 is only about people in the past. So why do you you, um, interpret that Calvinistically to uh, explain that this is how all of salvation works with these necessary connections between those various terms, justification, sanctification, or whichever terms it uses there?
0: Well, first of all, the, the language of foreknowing there isn't the language of knowing people in the past, contrary to Layton's mischaracterizations um, uh, of the language there. But nevertheless, the verbs are all in the past tense, right? For new is aorist, predestined is aorist, uh, pred- uh, called is aorist, and so forth. So, And these are all indicative <laughs> verbs, meaning that these probably are not Um, I mean, arguably, these are all past actions, but even if we want to limit these actions to people in the past, Paul is offering that chain of, of salvation of those people in the past as the basis for which we can know what he says we know in verse 28 which is we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And and in the context there, he's talking about, he says in verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints. That's present tense. So, So Paul is talking about the stuff that the Holy Spirit and God is doing for us now, and and what it is that we can be the confidence that we can have now. And so even if verses 29 and 30 are about people in the past, he's saying it's because of that, that we can have this kind of confidence and comfort in our weakness and in our um, uh, failures. And, And so I would say that the only way that that works is if that same chain of events that illustrates how God works all things together for good in those he loves, or for those who love him, the only way that that works as the foundation for that is if the fa- same things he says about the people he says about in verse 29 and 30 is also true of all the other saints. Mm. Well,
1: uh, not bad. Not too shabby, uh, Chris. Uh, I-, I thought this was going to be a train wreck, but I think you did okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, well, well, that will conclude our uh, answering objections and answering questions. Uh, if you guys are finding these interviews uh, interesting uh, and informative and useful to you, please, um, don't hesitate to subscribe to the revealed apologetics YouTube channel, and to also subscribe to the, uh, the podcast on iTunes and other, uh, formats as well. Um, and also stay tuned. I don't, I don't just do interviews with folks like, uh, Mr. Date here. Um, I do also do some teaching with a more central focus on apologetics and, uh, presuppositional apologetics and argumentation and things like that. So if you find those things interesting and useful as well, please, uh, um, please uh, subscribe. That'd be uh, greatly appreciated. Those of you who may uh, disagree with a lot or much of, of what Chris said, that's that's okay too. Um, iron sharpens iron. And um, I hope at least some of these things have challenged our thinking and cause us to go back to the word of God as that is our main authoritative source by which we are to measure uh, all truth. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, before you go, uh, where uh, can other people find you? And perhaps you want to say something very briefly about uh, that debate book you um, you did um, on the topic of meticulous uh, divine sovereignty.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, if people just go to Amazon.com/author/chrisdate, slash you'll get my Amazon authors page. And in addition to the two books that I edited on the topic of hell. There's also a book there called "Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being?" and it's a debate book that I did that I co-authored with an Arminian, um, in which I argue both for meticulous providence and for uh, Calvinistic predestination. So, um, and and I think it's uh, it's got a for its foreword was written by Dr. Michael Brown, who is not a Calvinist, um, and, but he and I are friends, and and um, well, I mean. <laughs> We know each other. Well, I him a bit. But anyway, he, he, I'm sure he's got way too many people that he would count as friends to be able to. Okay. Them. Um, but it's but it's a good book. And, and people like uh, Jonathan Pritchett, at, at, uh, who is also not a Calvinist um, at uh, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. He has said good things about it. And so do many other both Calvinists and Arminians. So people can check that out. It's available on Kindle as well. Um, and uh, and actually, I think it's over. People can see the cover of it right here over my back. Um, So, yeah, people can check that out. I've also, by the same publisher, got a debate book coming out very soon with Unitarian Dale Tuggy in which I defend the deity of Jesus Christ and Dale Tuggy argues against it. So if people just check back to this page periodically, they can find that as well, and I'd love for them to to pick up that book as well. And if people want to find me online, they can find a lot of the stuff I do with Rethinking Hell at RethinkingHell.com and at our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Rethinking Hell. In fact, we have a weekly YouTube live stream at 6 p.m. Pacific on Mondays that people can check out. And finally, I'm very accessible on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash Chris Date and you'll see me and you can befriend me there and I'd be happy to chat um, about this or any other topic. Um, So yeah, there you go. All right,
1: well, thank you so much for that. And just another shout out, I I know, Throughout the course of this discussion, we've mentioned Leighton Flowers uh, a lot. If, if those of you who do not know who Leighton Flowers is, he can be found at Soteriology 101. Uh, there's no uh, fear to point people in the direction of, of what critics have to say. And he's a very outspoken critic of, uh, of Calvinism. So um, you can check him out at Soteriology 101. Uh, nice guy. Um, I've had an interaction with him. That episode is on his uh, podcast as well as my podcast. And um, Chris Date has also engaged uh, Leighton Flowers in a very uh, fun and interesting and engaging discussion on Justin Briarly's Unbelievable Show. So you can check that out over there as well. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, I really much appreciate you being on and, and hopefully uh, we can have you on at a future date to talk about something else, maybe... Um, uh, your views on hell. And we can kind of talk a little bit about that. I'm sure you would be interested in, uh, in doing something like that. So thank you so much for your time, brother.
0: It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you so much for listening, everyone. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.